Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, we're going to Spain, although he's Irish, to be joined by Patrick Letty, the founder and CEO of Category One. Patrick, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be on the show. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you on. A lot of people have spoken positively about you. You're a serial entrepreneur, so there's a lot of insight you can you can give here. But as usual, podcast focuses on three main areas. The first being early influences. You've kept a low profile for a number of years, and I found it difficult to get some information on you. One of those pieces of information is where you grew up. I know you're Irish. You're based in Spain at the moment, in Valencia. But what were your standout memories of growing up in Ireland? Any favorite memories? Well, I grew up in uh, Rush, which is a seaside town in North Dublin. A lot of people don't know it. It's sandwiched right between Scaries, which uh, a lot of people will know, and another town called Lusk. So very, a very small and chilled out town. And, you know, I grew up basically living almost on the beach. And it was a great place to, to live, a great place to, to grow up. It was very relaxed. I was away from the city. I went to school in uh, North Dublin. And really, in my early days, that's when I kind of got bitten by the entrepreneurial bug um my parents are not entrepreneurs they have always worked a nine-to-five job but they're very driven people very much uh self-starters always doing something always ambitious so i think to a certain extent that did rub off on me they're also very very supportive of anything that i was interested in and they said look if you're if you're willing to work hard um you probably can do you know, you can start your own business or you will have a successful career that you possibly can do anything that you want, but you have to back it up with very hard uh, work. I remember getting a job when I was, I think I was like 14 or 15, uh, working in the local uh, Euro Spar. And this was literally my first job, you know, packing bags, stocking shelves. And there was actually kind of one influential character that I think really helped to accelerate my entrepreneurial journey. I remember though, from a young age, just being interested in business, being interested in the internet. I remember when we got our first computer, you know, it had that funky dial-up modem sound where no one else can use the phone at the same time. And I was just interested in kind of like hacking together basic websites. And, you know, it's, it was part of the dot-com rush uh, at that point. And I'm just a little, a little kid, of course. So in my first job, um, there was this guy that owned this particular Eurospar. His name was John, John Glenn, and I don't mind mentioning him. He was an early influencer um, in my journey, and he owned like 15 Eurospars across Dublin. So this guy was, um, he was rocking into work, driving like a very, very expensive Mercedes. That kind of thing doesn't impress me usually that much. I'm not like a, a material uh kind of guy but when you're 15 you can't help but notice you know this guy is driving a car that's worth probably half a million um dressing in three-piece suits waistcoats pocket watches all this kind of stuff which is intriguing very unusual looking guy but not afraid to roll up his sleeves and you know i'd be there opening up cases of of coca-cola stocking shelves which is kind of 
dirty work and he would literally roll up his sleeves and he'd be helping all the young lads in in his spar do the work do some of the cleaning do some of the the bag packing stocking the shelves and i was like this guy is 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 kind of amazing very intriguing guy here he is dressing up um dressing to impress driving these fancy cars and we knew he had like this network of shops around dublin and was making millions you know so this guy was a self-made millionaire um portrayed a little bit of a, a kind of a, a personal brand of being uh you know quite strict and quite quite serious i guess mm. you know he didn't want to be overly friendly with his uh with his employees and you know i think some people might have been a little bit afraid of of him in some ways um just so that they would stay in line that they would you know they would clock in and clock out they would do their work they would work hard but as I was kind of working alongside this guy, I couldn't help but be intrigued. I was interested in in business from an early age, and I recommend. I I remember just asking him all of these different questions about, you know, how he ended up starting his first business, and um, you know how he ended up getting investment, cash flow, uh, why it was shops, his own personal journey, and he was kind of intrigued himself. He's like, why is this little fifteen year old, you know, so inquisitive? um about my own background and how I so he ended up kind of opening up to me and warming up to me and I ended up just you know inundating him with questions anytime he would come in to the uh to the particular spar that I worked in of course he wouldn't be there all the time and I would literally just latch on to him and I would say look I've got this business idea I'm thinking about doing this how could I set up my own shop so I ended up getting a lot of kind of advice from him and uh, more inspiration, I would say, than advice. And that's really where I kind of, I remember feeling uh, bitten by the bug. I knew then when I was 15 that I was going to do something. Um, you know, and I remember bumping him in, bumping into John back in, uh, in Dublin two years ago. I was in a coffee shop there on South William Street. I hadn't, I hadn't seen him since I literally left my job. I think I was 16 by the time I, I packed in, in that job. And he said, you know, Patrick, he's like, I remember you. I've seen you featured in all of these publications. You've raised millions. Your businesses have gone on to be bought and sold. Um, he said, fair play to you. I, I honestly, um, you know, I remember our conversations uh, well back in, back in Rush, packing bags. So it was interesting to kind of complete that loop and go back and talk to John years later from, I think I'd earned some more respect <laughs> at that stage. I sat down and I had a coffee with him uh, and a, a nice chat. So it's, that's really what sparked me to um, go out and create something. It took and me a little- curious 15 year old, nice. Yeah. Um, a couple of things I know that you're about you before we get into business, you're into meditation, hiking. You've been to places like Japan, New York, Portugal, Bali, Burning Man. And you're into skiing as well. What's one thing that you're into or curious about that not a lot of people would know about you? God, I'm terrible at skiing. <laughs> I've tried it a few times, had a few accidents. Um, so yeah, I mean, I went to Japan really just um, out of out of curiosity. Um, I'm fascinated with Japanese culture, with the food, uh, with ikigai. I don't know if uh, our, your listeners are familiar with that framework. It translates in Japanese into life's purpose. And it's kind of a, a a lens at which to examine your life, uh, your potential and the work that you do. It's basically an intersection of three circles on a diagram that is, you know, what you're good at, what you can be paid for, 
what the world needs and what you actually like doing. So when you think about your life through those kind of three lenses and then you bring them together in, into a Venn diagram, into the intersections, you're able to kind of whittle down, you know, well, what should I be doing in my life? What is my life's purpose? And that can actually give you a lot of clarity and direction. So that's kind of one of the things that sparked me uh, to be interested in, in Japanese culture. I ended up living there in Tokyo for uh, a couple of months and then in Kyoto. Also have a fascination with matcha tea, matcha green tea. So I went to visit the uh, farm and producer that I've been FedExing matcha uh, from for, for a year. So I drink this particular matcha tea from uh, Kyoto. and uh, Every few months I FedEx a batch of it uh, over because uh, I just love the the mental effect that I get from that. I've actually ran out at the moment, so I'm drinking coffee and uh, for for just for the caffeine. And I think I'm a little bit j- more jittery with the with the coffee based caffeine. So I'm I'm expecting a package today, literally from Japan, nice. so I can go back to my matcha tea. That's how serious I am about that. So that's my fascination with Japan. Serial entrepreneur, if I'm correct, this is your fourth business to start. Um, from your end, what do you think holds people back from moving from the idea to execution? This is the fourth business that I'm in that's actually made money. But what you don't know, what you don't know uh, is there are a bunch of other ones that never got off the ground. Some of them <laughs> I even struggle to remember, but there's a lot of failed starts. There's been a lot of duds, dead ends and things that just blew up in my face. Um, a lot of early stage entrepreneurs don't see that kind of like iceberg effect. They see the, you know, they see the tip of the iceberg above the water for other successful entrepreneurs. And they see, you know, it almost looks like that person has become an overnight success. And a lot of people advertise that that has been their, their journey, but they don't look below the, the water where the, the bulk of the iceberg is. And they don't look at the self-doubt the mental health issues perhaps even that come along with you know building companies over a long time period the frustration the negative self-talk the limiting beliefs and that's actually just part of the of, of the journey um and i've kind of lost track of your original question so i'm sorry what was the I, i'm actually going to throw a side question at you because yeah. you're, you're talking there do you think that uh being a founder gives you freedom or the illusion of freedom a great question um yeah i mean in a sense you do actually create freedom uh, because at least you can decide what you want to do with your day and whether that's to work or not work i'm a workaholic so i pretty much work um all of the time even though i say i'm semi-retired in spain i'm working on a you know in a coaching and consulting business where we help early stage service-based entrepreneurs to start and scale their business I just, I love it so much. I enjoy it so much. Naturally, I end up working. Even if it's a cafe down the road, I'm in the sun, I'm having a, a tea, I'll still open up the laptop and I'll end up write, writing some marketing content because I absolutely love it. So in a way, you can get into this kind of uh, mode as a founder where you end up becoming uh, a workaholic that may suit you or it may not. Um you have to pay the piper at some stage. So working a lot of the time, naturally it will you know, raise your stress levels. It will deprive you of sleep. It will uh, pump your adrenals. You will be in the uh, sympathetic nervous system state, which is fight or flight instead of the parasympathetic 
rest and digest you'll you'll be there a lot of the time so there is a kind of a, a price to pay for that but at least um you know i would feel very trapped if i was to go back and get like a, a, a nine to five job i've thought about it at times you know between companies I'm, I've, I've said to myself look you know you've got a lot of skills and expertise you could get a very high paying job and just you know take some time off you know get out get the get out of monkey mind mode and just chill out for a couple of years because you know being in a nine to five job is nothing uh compared with actually the the effort and energy that goes into a company but anytime i've thought of that of actually being stuck in the office you know with someone else you know kind of telling me what to do or mm -hmm. or, whatever, or however i've never really had a proper nine to five uh job uh, apart from being a, a web designer very briefly early on mm -hmm. in my career so that feeling of actually just being stuck in a physical office someone kind of watching when i'm coming and going and not being able to decide hey you know what i'm going to go to istanbul this week and like work remotely or this week i'm going to you know this month i'm going to take on less clients and i'm going to work a little bit less so this month i'm going to really cane it i'm going to go hard and I'm going to generate an extra hundred thousand in revenue this month because I want to do something or other. I want to buy a house or I want to whatever. You can decide what you want to do. So that kind of being in control of your own destiny is very appealing to me. And I think it's very appealing to a lot of entre other entrepreneurs, but it's not necessarily the freedom that people think it is. It's freedom of choice, but you still have to work your ass off you're working a lot of the time. So you're not just going to be like on the beach drinking margaritas, which I do sometimes on if it's if it's a Saturday or maybe a Sunday. Yeah. Um but yeah, so I don't know if I answered the question well there. Oh, you did. You did actually and uh, the majority of the audience here is entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs, MDs, but uh, for anyone who potentially uh, got an itch and, you know, has an idea what do you think has held people back from having the idea but not executing? Is there something that you can see a common trend that is something that's holding people back? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if there's like kind of one single thing that prevents people from from getting going, but like probably one element of this is um, perfectionism and probably just them not having a critical path so they maybe don't they have an idea for a business and when it comes to actually getting going on that process and that really is the magic that is the key is to start because everything else once you make that decision to begin and start everything will fall into place um you, you know the next step becomes reasonably obvious mm. but people don't have that critical path of things that they should do and they end up just getting overwhelmed with all of the things that they need to do before before they actually start. And one of the common issues that I see people make, and even in you know the people that we coach directly, is they try to build a product, a service, a program. If they're like doing coaching or consulting, a lot of people are doing that. By the way, these days there's like this mass exodus of people from nine to five jobs, low cost then entry. taking. Yeah, the low barrier barrier to entry, exactly. And it's going to boom. This is going to be, uh, you know, it's already a multi-billion dollar industry. I don't know what the exact facts and figures are, but it's hockey stick. It's going up. And um, 
it's intellectual capital and people wanting to repackage and take their knowledge that they that they have in their job and they want to do better for themselves and who could blame them they want to go online they want to build an audience and covid of course has accelerated that uh to an incredible degree um part of what we we are doing here is actually uh, serving that market we're teaching people how to actually package up your knowledge everything that you know your skills your experience and actually bring it online in the form of a uh, an online product but to answer your question people will um languish and will ruminate on what are the perfect set of steps do i need to have my perfect website my business registered my office address uh my email marketing system set up i need my product or program designed or service designed i need all of these things to be perfect and because they've made this impossible task list for themselves it's so overwhelming that they naturally just can't physically uh, find the right thing to do so what you, we actually yeah go on. and what what we actually teach people to do is uh, to go through a process what we call find the gap bridge the gap teach the market and um, my first business web splash and we can talk a little bit more about that, but it was an absolute disaster. And I stayed in that business for way longer than I should have, should have. It was the first business that I set up, literally leaving Eurospar to then go out on my own. And it was building websites. And I didn't know it at the time, but it was a hugely competitive market. There were so many people building websites, so many web design agencies, and I just copied everyone else. So I had the same features and benefits list. I had the same website myself i describe the same you know my, my products and services in the same way i look the same i sound the same i was a me too business there was no point of difference so i couldn't get any work well i could get some work just to kind of keep the lights on but very low paying work um and that was actually just like a big wake-up call that when you go and you copy some other business model when you become a me too and you don't do any research you end up kind of stuck in the sea of sameness. You, get, you end up stuck in a red ocean and that's making life harder than it has to be. Business is already hard, but it becomes impossible if you're just a, a copycat, uh, photocopied, rehashed, worse version of your competitors. Well, then you're just making life a hell of a lot harder than your, uh, for yourself. You can and make it, it harder by then being the cheapest of the exactly. as well. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what I did. In, in, in web in, in web splash before it you know almost ran out of money uh, I became the absolute cheapest and then I discovered these concepts although they weren't called this back then what we now call find the gap bridge the gap teach the market I found this uh, this process to find new opportunities that are underserved in the market and to bridge them in an in, a, in, a, in an innovative way and to do some uh, educating the market and that's what led to uh, Furious Tribe being built, which ended up becoming a multi multi million dollar company, uh, compared with a scrappy web design company that was building websites for florists in Dublin, uh, that nice. kind of thing. Um, Side note, uh, I'll leave links below, and I want to touch on it before we finish. You've got a book there to be different. You've also got your site has a six part kind of docu series that people can watch as well. So I'll leave links to all them below. But I've, I've read this book. Uh, and it has the whole concept around the book is it, it talks about these 13 different blind spots that can hold back an otherwise healthy business things like uh, uh, hiring but then not doing any training uh, or hiring itself being a blind spot lead generation 
and I'm, I'm wondering is do you think there's a blind spot that people shouldn't ignore and uh, might often be overlooked but if they get it right can make a huge impact yeah i think there's a few things um i'll start with something that maybe has lesser impact and then i'll give you my number one after that if that's okay mm-hmm, so sure. I, I i think um a, a very powerful way of landing business is to disrupt the learning process that people go go through and you know pre-internet people have to kind of have discussions with salespeople, whereas nowadays they kind of do that research by themselves they use the internet and they're not a very sophisticated they're not very sophisticated as a buyer so they don't really know what product or solution is really the best for them they just rely on marketing and research they find online and then when it comes to talking to sales it happens very late in the process and that person has almost normed around uh, how they want to solve the problem and kind of who they want to go with and it comes down to price so a very effective strategy is to disrupt that learning process and you probably can't outspend your competition or outsmart them or outmaneuver them across a lot of dimensions but probably what you can do is out teach the competition and to educate your market in such a way i'm not talking about bland content marketing like the five things you need to know about this and the three tips on this and that usual kind of rehash crap that competitors copy each other on and they kind of have the same content marketing but i'm talking about like frame breaking insights that you're able to through your teaching show your prospect the truth of their situation that they have overlooked and to actually reframe the problem entirely in a way that leads them to you so that you don't actually have to go out there beating your drum talking about your features and benefits and marketing at them that you actually become the trusted advisor true education and I'm not just talking about educating them in a generic way about giving them these tips and tidbits and thought leadership content, but genuinely like jarring them out of complacency and give, and shaking them um, to the point that they really examine the frame that they're in and examine the status quo that they're living in and say, well, wow, you know, my life or my business is a lot, really is a lot worse than I thought it was. And my current approaches and the things that I value about solving this problem and methodologies, yeah, that stuff really is not working for me. It's broken. And here's a new opportunity without actually selling the business, sell the new idea first and lead people to you. That's been explosive in terms of a concept for for us as a business in Furious Tribe and Pulsate in the current business. Um, That's how we win. That's how we get clients is because we out-teach our competitors. Apart from that, most companies don't have a customer acquisition mechanism. One that is repeatable, one that is scalable, uh, and one for which you can acquire customers profitably. So the CLTV, the customer lifetime value, is exponentially higher, hopefully, than the CAC, than the customer acquisition cost. So for, for us, one of the ways that we acquire customers in our coaching business is actually through a book funnel. So the book is $4.99. It's basically a, uh, it's an ebook. It's packed with value. Actually, a lot of our training and knowledge, it's, there's no holding back. We pretty much tell you everything 
that we coach you on. We give it all mm. to you in the ebook. We charge $4.99 for it. Um, and we use YouTube ads and we use Facebook ads to basically position and sell that book for f- literally just for $4.99. Mm-hmm. And what happens is now, depending on whether you're B2B or you're B2C or the nature of the business, it will determine whether giving away a lead magnet is right for you. Um, you know, one of the things that we did a year ago was actually to give away a lot of free content with Facebook ads. But we found that the, you know, the lead, the lead quality that we were getting was uh, atrocious, just very, very poor quality leads costing quite a lot. And it was eroding then the profit on, on, on the main business. So once we actually started charging for, for content, um, we were able to generate buyers straight away. Um, we're literally getting people to pay for the free information that we were previously giving away. And we were attracting higher quality people. At the same time, we're, we were breaking even on the front end. So all of the acquisition was paying for itself. So being able to actually liquidate on your customer acquisition uh, acquisition activities is fantastic because if you can get your LTV above your CAC, well then scale is 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 uh, is imminent. You'll be able to actually ramp that up and spend you know potentially an infinite amount on on advertising if initially those low end offers that you're giving away pay for themselves and then some, and then you know you're you're basically people are paying you to consume your free training and get pre-framed around buying from you. So having some kind of a mechanism that you can literally print customers night and day for your business is, is crucial. And, you know, becoming the trust advise, trusted advisor through that content, that low-end content, which then positions phone calls, which positions upsells. And a lot of people, a lot of businesses are actually just trying to directly sell their core offer um, through cold calling, through direct outreach. Maybe they're running ads for some brand awareness, but of course it's quite hard to sell a $10,000 program or a $100,000 piece of software to people who don't know who you are, who don't trust you, who have never bought anything from you before. So actually creating a lead generation or a customer generation machine of acquiring customers and then farming customers instead of leads. I think leads are overrated in 2021. Something you've, you've talked about on stage before is the topic of peak performance. Yeah. You said people should look at business as a series of sprints with recovery, not as a marathon. And the most important thing is sleep. Sure. Why sleep rank number one? Well, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in the overall biohacking uh, space. And for people that don't know what that is, it is essentially a group of, of, uh, of individuals. A lot of them are from the medical field and have scientific backgrounds. And they look at different uh, lifestyle interventions. Some could be as simple as meditation or visualization or hypnosis, but it spans the full range of taking uh, nutritional supplements, adjusting your diet, doing a keto diet, fasting, different forms of exercise, uh, thermogenesis, like doing uh, saunas and hot and cold exposure. And it's all about, um, you know, improving your stress response, uh, improving your energy, your focus, your mood, all of those things. And sleep is so critical to the human body. There's so much research done on this that if you, if you get a bad night's sleep, 
you don't really have the mental fortitude and brain energy and focus to get up the next day and do your best work. You're going to be running on 20, 30% uh, or maybe even less. Sleep deprivation is almost like being drunk um, to the point where you know people will have road accidents um, the more sleep deprived they are. So you really just can't be at your best unless you're fully rested and have slept well. Yeah, there's a, there's a, I don't know whether an expert is right, but there's someone who's very knowledgeable in uh, studying sleep. And he said that the greatest legally performance enhancing drug for athletes that is not overused is sleep. He's talked about how Roger Federer, you know, sleeps 10 to 12 hours a night and Usain Bolt as well, nine to 11 hours a night and takes naps during the day. So the top athletes out there are doing it. There's something to it. I just bring it up because I see a lot of people, like I saw uh, I'm part of Sandler and one of the top Sandler franchise owners last night put up this kind of screenshot of his Fitbit sleep and he didn't, for the last week, he, there was no night where he slept more than five and a half hours. And I was just like, wow, sleep is so important, but there he is and other people looking up to him going, this, good, this dude sleeps like four hours, 10 minutes, four hours, seven minutes, four hours, 14 minutes. And that's terrible. People look, yeah. People looking up to that. Yeah, I mean, you should never aspire to that. I think it's gonna you're gonna run yourself into the ground um, on so many levels, and you probably will die younger as well, considerably younger. There's like really good data on that. Maybe Matthew Walker. I'm not sure if is the guy you're talking about. That there could be. Yeah, else. just I've seen him on Joe Rogan before, but I saw him on a couple of other like he was at Oxford and spoke at Oxford. Um, I'll say take, like sleep is something that you work on. Like my sleep has been terrible my whole life, and it's something that I have to constantly work at to get better on. And that's why I incorporate things like saunas and taking magnesium and taking taurine and taking ashwagandha, which is a Ayurvedic adaptogen. And sometimes it works, you know, and sometimes it doesn't. Like last night, I, I got a bad night's sleep, very hot last, last night here in Spain. But, um, you know, sometimes the interventions work and sometimes they don't. And, you know, stress level is uh, a part of that but you should always strive to sleep a sensible amount. I probably can't get more than seven hours sleep, but that's that's enough. I'm in the realm of being able to function well and hopefully not die uh, early as a result. Um, but I'm aimed to be uh, in bed by 10 p.m. every night. I, I doubt you're stressed living in Valencia in Spain. Um, well, go on. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm always pushing myself. I don't, yeah. I, I, I thought it would be different. You know, like I, um, I've built a couple of larger companies like Furious Drive and Pulsate and we did the whole Silicon Valley thing of raising multi-millions in, in, in that company. And after 10 years, let's say, or more in very high stress, you know, build a big staff, teams, investors, all that kind of thing, I decided like, is this really what I want to be doing for the rest of my life? Is this the type of business where you have, you know, you're constantly needing to raise funding because that's what B2B SaaS companies do. You know, even if you're generating revenue and Pulse is generating very good revenue, but still raising money, raising more money. Um, and I, I kind of wondered, have I kind of got a bit of goal inheritance here? You know, have I been hanging around Silicon Valley for too long? You know, do I really want to build a... Um, a company that requires, you know, every year millions of venture capital to be on this. And you know yourself, like every every raise that you go through, 
it puts the exit price much higher on the company. So the investors are looking for a 10x return. So mm -hmm. every every time you raise a million dollars, um, you're you know the the target that you hit, have to hit goes up and up and up and up. So after uh, five or six years, roughly in, in in Pulse Eight, I decided you know we need to get a new CEO in to run the company to scale the company, and I actually want to move to Spain, take things uh, slower for for a change because it's been like you know ten years that I've literally been always on. And you know what? I just want to build like a coaching business that does a couple of hundred thousand in revenue and just chill out in Spain. Within about six months of getting here, suddenly, you know, <laughs> I'm, st I'm actually going back to the, the old way of working and I'm still pushing myself. So even living, e even though I'm living in this kind of much more of a relaxing environment, um, I'm still pushing myself like I always have. So I, it seems to be just innate and inbuilt and not something that I can get rid of. Um, so I'm still actually thinking now of how we can build this to a, a million dollar business, the current one. And I, I wasn't thinking that way, but it's just funny the way your, your goals actually come back. You're in the consulting business. I've come across many people in that business and from looking at it from the outside, uh, I've very rarely seen anyone build a pass a million by themselves. If they're to scale a pass a million, they've got to bring in people. Have you got people on your team or is it you at the moment? And because I've only ever seen the, the cap I ever see is like a million. And then if they want to get past it, they've got to bring people in. Yeah. So I have a few advisors and a few coaches that help me out and to get to a million, we'll definitely need more help for sure to get there. But like our program, the way it's built is it's quite scalable. So it's actually just a, a group coaching program. So okay. I hop, we, we, yeah, we've like a very elaborate training course that we've built out, which is a lot of content, a lot of frameworks. Uh, by the way, we give a big portion of that away for free uh, with our with our book, which people can get at. You'll leave it a, a link in the show. I'll, notes. I'll leave a link in the show notes for sure. And I'm going to end on that, but I've got one or two more questions before that. You touched on investing, business generated multi billions in sales. No, you've got investment from the likes of Google, PayPal, Tesco, Vodafone. I could go on and name a few more. Um, two things. One, uh, if someone's considering investment, what should they not overlook? And why should they even consider an investment? Because uh, to me, uh, and I know bootstrapping is not always the answer, uh, but I believe it's underrated. All right. Really, really, really good question. Um I just want to kind of clarify something if I can first, which is, sure. you know, I, I said, I'm, I thought I was moving to Spain to chill out. Now that we're kind of like halfway to a million, I've decided we're going to build it to a million. That's <laughs> not by taking on investment, right? That is yep. purely a bootstrap business because I've decided that while we had amazing investors, you know, we didn't have a bad experience. We're lucky. A lot of people do have very bad experiences raising venture capital, if they don't execute well, you know, they end up getting booted out of the company pretty early. We had a great, we had great experiences and great relationships. So I can't complain, but personally I've decided I don't want to report into boards of directors. I don't want to be on that kind of trajectory. I want complete control of the business. And if I ever decide to sell it, um, I want to be able to do so without getting vetoed, right? Which is an investor blocking it because they want to the company to go further and faster and sell for 10x at a later point. Um, you need to really think about this very hard if you're going to raise money for your business. Um, you need to think of it, first of all, if you want that lifestyle. 
if you want the lifestyle of having a board of directors, of having to report into them on a, on a monthly basis to hit revenue targets that they set, um, you need to be prepared to answer difficult questions if and when you don't hit those targets, which are at some point in the journey inevitable. Um, they, of course, will have differing goals maybe to you. So you need to think about how aligned the investors that you bring in, how aligned they are with your vision of the business. Is it going to become, is it going to be a lifestyle business? Well, no one would invest in that anyway. Are you going to sell the business for a million, 10 million, 50 million? Where are you going to actually get out? How much more capital are you going to need to raise to hit those goals? How much dilution are you prepared to take? Because of course, in you know a lot of the businesses that I've built that have taken investment, I've been diluted you know a considerable amount because we've raised millions, right? So my shareholding is a lot different uh, to a business that would be bootstrapped. So you need to really consider: Do you want that lifestyle? Uh, if so, that's fine. If you have a shared vision of exiting the company, let's say for for thirty million, um, cool, raise the money, uh, make sure the terms are friendly. There's a lot of founder-friendly terms uh, with U.S. investors. A lot of the U.K. and Irish investors tend to have unfriendly uh, terms uh, or can do, not all of them, but you need to be very careful that you look at that, that there's no double dips, um, liquidation preference, things like that. In other words, let's say you only sell the company for five million um, and they've invested X amount, they get paid first before you, you do. These are kind of like antiquated terms that are not done in the Valley, in Silicon Valley. They don't do that anymore. Um, it's a very competitive environment over there actually to find companies to invest in. So they're kind of stumbling over themselves to give you the money. Um, so you really want to think about how friendly the terms are that you're getting your money on and how much control you have of the business. For others, you may not want to go down the route of, um, of investment. And, you know, I had this conversation recently with a friend. He's got a multi-million dollar business, wanted to scale it. Um, but we sat down and we had a long talk about his lifestyle. And, you know, it just wouldn't really equate with his, uh, with his lifestyle to raise, you know, he was going to look at raising like 20, 30 million. He's got very significant traction already. But when I explained to him what it would be like, uh, you know, to go through that process, uh, the things, the controls that would be taken away from him, he quickly realized, you know, this is not for, for, for me. So I'm not saying don't raise venture capital. Um, if it's aligned with your goals, it can be rocket fuel for your business and it can, it can really help you. And strategic investors as well can be great. We have great, great investors um, in, in Pulsate in particular, but you need to do it for the right reasons. Uh, and also your business needs to be at the right stage. So if you don't have product market fit and some investors don't actually understand whether you've hit product market fit or not yet, they might get excited by your idea. They might get excited by the fact that you've got a few initial customers and they might throw in the money, but you might have product market fit problems. In other words, you're in a very contested, crowded marketplace. Mm -hmm. And you have a great difficulty actually scaling up beyond the first couple of customers. So venture capital should be used as an accelerant when you're already on that trajectory. And when I think back to Pulsate, now Pulsate ended up getting very good product market fit uh, in the financial services sector. So Pulsate powers 650 
banks around the world. We provide like the mobile banking software that powers literally the retail banking app mm -hmm. uh, from a marketing perspective, not the banking, the marketing, the push notifications, all that stuff. But before that, before we got product market fit, we were selling into retail and we didn't have uh, any a great fit there. So we were launching in Brown Thomas and Selfridges, impressive sounding uh, things like that. But getting those deals was so hard and we raised a lot of money. Initially, we raised 1.2 million. It raised a lot of money after that, but 1.2 million on the back of that. And PayPal gave us a, the lion's share of that money. Um, and then we tried to replicate what we had done with those retailers. And it was almost impossible to get. Now, we did get more retail customers, but those deals were, like, were so long uh, to get them signed. They took ages. Uh, they really weren't, from revenue terms, worth very much. And we had the investors saying, you know, well, what's going on here, guys? You know, we put in like a million quid into the company and this thing is not taken off like the rocket ship that you sold to us. And I'm like, Jesus, you know, this is a difficult conversation uh, to be having. Now, we worked damn hard and we figured out then that this was better suited to retail banking, not for selling shoes in Selfridges. And it took a year, right, a year to actually go from product market fit suffering, getting, you know, I wouldn't say getting beaten up on, on board calls. They're all very nice, very professional. You know, every month we like, you know, well, okay, Patrick, so let's look at the numbers, right? We've only signed one client here this month. You know, we need to do something. And I was like, I'm working on it as the whole team. We're working on it. Then we got it. We easily could have not got it, right? You never know. We might not have got mm -hmm. that product market fit had things been, been different. But we ended up getting one huge partnership with uh, NCOR. If you look at an ATM, if you're ever at an ATM, you look mm -hmm. at, there's like an NCOR logo on it, right? So they literally put us into, once we'd built an integration into them, hundreds of banks around the world. And that's when product market fit took off. So there's my thoughts on raising venture capital and the do's and don'ts. Final question for you, and then we'll finish on your book. I believe yeah. that to get anyone to take action, you must first get their attention. I've seen you create content. Do you believe that content distribution via the right channels uh, is a good way to stand out and get attention? It is the only way. In, in the, in the three-second world, through the attention span crisis that we're going through, the only way is to spark your target market with a compelling hook to introduce a new promise or problem to confront them about the pain left unsolved and to guide them in a different direction, to spark, introduce, confront. Your content's got to be compelling. It's got to be insightful. It's got to set, set off serious aha moments and alarm bells in the prospect's mind. Other than that, content I don't think is very useful because it's there's so much content and a lot of it is so generic. So it really has to be quite unique content that's you know starts to get people thinking differently about themselves so that eventually they think differently about your about your business nice answer you're an author the book is there to be different who's it for uh who do you think will get value from it and i'll leave a link to it below as well yeah absolutely so i'm writing a, a new book at the moment which is dare to be different wow. the current the current book is called grow um so should have mentioned that the current book is called grow you can get it at patrickletty.com forward slash book and it comes with a lot of bonus content and training courses that we we basically put in there 
to help early stage entrepreneurs, service-based business owners, coaches, consultants, experts, speakers that want to go online, build an audience, build their personal brand to figure out how to actually niche down, to figure out their mechanism, their high ticket offer, to build out their program. It's all in the book. So that's who it's for. Uh, it's a short read. It's like literally like 65 uh, pages. Patrick, I've enjoyed spending the last 35, 45 minutes with you. Um, I wish you nothing but the best going forward, wherever the future brings you. If it brings you back to Japan or you stay in Spain or come back to Ireland, all the best. Uh, thank, you. thank you for being my guest today. It's been hugely enjoyable. I'll see you back in Dublin, hopefully for a pint at some stage. Beautiful morning. Get a sun in my morning, babe. Nothing